Ladies and gentlemen, ladies, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, it's noon and it's my duty to start this yet another session of SACPA. I'm so glad that so many of you braved the uh, elements outside to come to this extremely important session of SACPA. I asked you to turn off your electronic devices and SACPA acknowledges that our events take place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and Métis Nation of Alberta, region number three. And we pay respect to their past, present and future cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship to the land. We commit to do our utmost to assist with efforts to mend and heal past and present injuries. I am your moderator today. My name is Klaus Jericho, and uh, Knud asked me to be the moderator. I'm very pleased he did, because this subject is very close to my heart. Uh, it's a very small part, but I've, I've been gardening in the back of my garden for many, many years. And last, year's, last year, I produced the best potatoes yet. <laughs> and you know why? Because finally, I gave them enough water. <laughs> I couldn't believe how much water they take. And of course, that's not the only crop which takes so much water in southern Alberta. There's corn, there's beets, and there's beef. Unbelievable. So this is very close to my heart. Um, I'll remind you that these sessions are recorded by Annelise and also by Shaw. Um, and the outline for today's program is, as many of you know, we, I introduce the speaker, and then the speaker has about 25, 30 minutes, and then we have lunch. And I hear today it is uh, soup and sandwich for $14. And um, then we have question and answers thereafter for about half an hour. Uh, I've told you about, uh, oh yeah, those who do not want to have the meal, they can have coffee and tea for $2. Now the uh, speaker today for this utmost important subject is Terence Lawrence. He comes from Zimbabwe. He was born in Zimbabwe. He was trained in South Africa. And then in 1982, he came to Alberta with the um, Alberta environment. And he became involved in canal systems and dams, not only their construction, but also their operation. And for the last five years, he has been the manager of the Southern, the St. Mary's Irrigation District system. So he is highly qualified, years and years of experience. So we are extremely fortunate to have someone in this room whose brain is filled with irrigation and water issues. So please tell us all about irrigation and its consequences to southern Alberta, 
its economy and its agriculture. And particularly, I look forward to hearing about can technology support increased efficiency? I look forward to that. Please, Terence, come up. Thank you very much for that uh, introduction. Uh, most people who know me probably think my head is not filled with water, but just about nothing but air. <laughs> and maybe after this presentation, you might agree. Anyway, uh, um, given half an hour, it's just a flavor of some of those things Klaus has spoken about. And uh, so uh, I've entitled it a past, present, and future. It, it's that, that dichotomy where, where the past often informs the present and again informs the future, and the future is often based on the past. So, so although those subjects here, and in fact you can see here there's a steam shovel on your left, and in the middle is something called an irrigation building, and on the far right that photograph is a baseball game in Gold Gardens between Montana and Alberta, and behind that tall building is the irrigation building. So with that, maybe I'll talk about some of the things a little brief history of the St. Mary River irrigation projects, which is complex. And what is an irrigation district? A little taste of, of hydrology in southern Alberta. And what is the value of crops? How much money are we talking? And, and what is the future? Now, this is underscored. This is my, what has two thumbs and has a personal opinion? Me. So whatever is said on here and recorded here is my personal opinion, not that of the St. Mary Irrigation District or just my, my crystal balling. But before that, I'd like to know how many people are going to have more than one glass of water at lunch today? Put up your hand. Perfect. We'll answer that question later. And let's see. I, I haven't had any water, although, although I got a little jug here, I have cold water. So, a little history. History of Southern Alberta and irrigation starts with this gentleman, uh, Sir Alexander. We all know about him. He was the father of Confederation. He, he was a huge promoter of the British North America Act. He was MLA for Sherbrooke. He was the Inspector General, which means he was the Minister of Finance. Very important gent. He uh, sent his son, Torrance Elliott, to Southern Alberta. Torrance was the uh, Assistant Indian Commissioner. And, and the idea of that was uh, Sir Alexander wanted to promote growth in the Northwest Territories, as this area was known back then in his time. And, and he was a promoter of railways. He was particularly involved in the um, uh, Grand, Grand Trunk Railway out east. But of course, he wanted to start a company here. And he, his son suggested to him, and he started the Northwest Coal and Navigation Company Limited in 1882. And, and that later became uh, the Alberta Railway and Irrigation Company, which really is the precursor of the St. Mary system as we know it. These are the gents that were in front of the irrigation building. And in fact, the, um, uh, one of them is, is Elliot Torrance himself. By the way, can you hear me at the back? Are we good? Just checking. It's, it's hard here because I don't hear the speakers. So a little bit about that. And this is, this is construction of the Chin Cooley uh, reservoir, as you can see, and I put this picture up to, to show how difficult it was to actually build things. Here's a team of horses. I can't imagine sitting on that thing or how long it would take you to build things. But, but what's interesting is, is the companies that were involved in this, starting in 1890 with the Alberta Railway and Coal Company, 
moving right on to, to as I said, the Alberta Rail. Um, but all the while, the connection between rail and irrigation was that people who built railways realized they needed something to put on the rail cars. That something in this part of the world was agricultural crop. So, so very soon the Galts realized, yeah, we can mine coal, and the original idea was to actually put it on the river and put it on barges and sell it. And they realized, of course, you can't do that. They sandbars and the river goes up and down. And, and so, but then they, they quickly realized that they should be in irrigation and railway because the irrigation would support their railway. And in fact, uh, starting, starting in the 18, late 1890s, they started construction at Kimball, which moved water from McGrath to Sterling. And by September the 4th in 1900, water arrived here in Lethbridge through the St. Mary project system to the great joy of the residents at the time because very quickly they realized this was prosperity for them. They realized that the economy would rely on having a reliable water source, as did the railways. And it was a great joy in 1900 and, and so forth. So that, um, and then in 1912, the CPR realizing, of course, we need to be in irrigation. And they bought out the, the um, Alberta Railway and Irrigation Company themselves. And they built canals. And they built a whole infrastructure. And not only that, they built 17 ready-made farms at ready-made, of course, 17 160-acre farms that uh, very, uh, and I love the, this is the original poster. And it's kind of uh, in today's world of where we have angry people wanting to uh, separate. We see here that they want British farmers of moderate capital. I always laugh at that one. <laughs> anyway, so they had a ready-made, in fact, if you know Lethbridge at all, opposite London Market, there's some ready-made homes there. They not only were on the farms, but there's some on that, on 6th Street. And so between 1919 and 1946, CP was not only a promoter of irrigation, they built canals. However, they, they built something like 220 kilometers of canals. They were, however, they weren't interested in building dams. They did not want to spend the money. And of course, it, during this period was the depression. They just didn't have the money and they didn't support that. So what happened is in about 1946, they gave up. Around 1946, we had the uh, PFRA come in. The PFRA is the Prairie Farm Rehabilitation Association. Uh, thank you. And uh, it started by R. Bennett in 1935. And their mandate, and this is, this is again, I'm repeating the same theme. Their mandate was to promote sustainable development in rural prairies. And quite obviously, that sustainable development for them, for the PFRA, was water. They promoted and developed the St. Mary River Dam. And the construction of that started in 1948, completed in 1951. And by 1954, they got water to, to Medicine Hat. And so then they had a grand opening, which I have a few photographs here. Here's the grand opening. Here we have a contingent of RCMP marching across the top of the dam, followed by dignitaries, these dignitaries being the Blackfoot 
So they had a very big celebration here. The, the fellow at the mic, whom I don't know who it is, has a peace pipe. And not only that to be outdone, we had these folks from Medicine Hat. They're called the Desert Tribe, and I don't know what it is, but they were there. <laughs> so I always look at this picture and have a little chuckle, but uh, th that was the opening of the dam. And I do chuckle at this, but the importance of that dam, you could see by the amount of people that came. And what is heartwarming, I think, to see there is it was all peoples of Southern Alberta, including the Blackfeet themselves, the Blackfoot Nation, pardon me. Anyway, what is an irrigation district? We have 13 of them, and they're formed by the Irrigation Districts Act. And, and uh, all 13, they vary in size, but of course, I do have to tell you, the number nine you see in there where the three arrows are, the St. Mary Irrigation District, which of course I'm promoting today as you know, being the flagship irrigation district. Insert laughter, that's a joke. <laughs> <It's> a <laughs> but but by, by, by irrigated acres, we are in fact the largest amount of irrigated acres. But interestingly, because we stretch from Lethbridge to Medicine Hat, we have a great variety of crop because of the change in climate and soil conditions. But the irrigation district itself, the broad purpose of that is to provide the formation, dissolution, and governments of districts to manage the delivery of water. And the legislative purpose and powers of those districts are, then there's some sort of divert water, construct and operate the maintain the works. But most importantly in my mind, and certainly for this talk, is to maintain and promote the economic viability of the district. But that part becomes important because it's not only the district, as we'll learn shortly, it's for the entire area. So 13 districts, I was asked earlier how many acres, 1.3 million acres of irrigated land and 247,000 of private irrigated land in Alberta. We are the largest user of water, 65% of all uses in Alberta. Very large, obviously. 20% of the province's gross agricultural production and 5% of the land. Just digest that for a moment and, and think about that proportionality. $5 billion to the Alberta economy through irrigated product. And the infrastructure supports not only irrigation, but, but because of by happenstance, 42,000 people in 50 municipalities and 12, and I think it's much more than that. But if you, you know, just cast your mind to recent public events here in Lethbridge with Cavendish plant moving in, of $680 million of investment, why? Because of all of this, because of the sustainability of water and because of crop. And this is something we try and do a lot, and sometimes by happenstance, but there are something like 87,000 acres of wetland habitat. Some, most times because the canals leak. <laughs> and that's a fact. <laughs> so for some of you, this will be the boring part. This is just, for some of you, maybe not. But I do want to touch on that basic hydrology. like. What does water mean in, in southern Alberta? This, this is a graph showing the St. Mary River. Uh, don't worry about the numbers themselves. Along the, uh, along the horizontal axis is months of the year, and the vertical axis is flow. 
So as you read the graph, it starts in January very low and then moves up to June and down. This is normal flow for this river. This line shows the normal bottom half of that flow, or the bottom quarter, if you wish, and this is the top. So between the blue and green lines, hopefully they're blue, yes, they are, but 50% of the time, the water will be somewhere between the blue and green lines on the St. Mary River. So I'm not particularly choosing this river for any particular reason, just the shape of this graph. It goes up in the summer and down in the, in the fall. So what does this mean and how does this work? Well, the first part of the year, we have low winter flows. Uh, of course we know that. Uh, these flows are mainly because of maybe some snow melting, some uh, you know, water coming out the mountains. Uh, these kinds of sort of contribute to very low flow, but you have flow. Starting at about April, you have the spring freshet starting, where the snow starts melting in the mountains and, and starts adding to the flow. Um, the snow melt itself contributes something like 75 to 80 percent of the average annual volume of water in a river. Of course, that's skewed if you have a huge flood, then that's not the case. But if you look at a long-term average, the water in the river, most of that water is snow melt. And there's another interesting fact, too. Um, um, as we move into the next month, you have the spring rainfalls, and we know about those. And then everybody uh, always says, well, the snow is going to melt and cause a flood. S snow in the eastern slopes of the Rockies will never alone contribute to flooding. You always have to have precipitation. And why that is, the snow melts and creates a base flow within the river. And that base flow, if it rains, the rain is on top of that base flow. So you have your snow, your melt, snow melt flow, and then the water on top of that. That's what creates the flooding. And it's very interesting. Speak to me at some point, not during here, what contributes to the very, very large flooding. Then after the spring freshet, we have irrigation at a time when the rivers are going down. And why I show this is the reason we have reservoirs is to capture that water in August onward. That would happen when we're not irrigating and to balance that flow, basically taking the high peaks of the water and sending them down the river later on in the year. The, this graph shows the natural flow, not the augmented flow or the reduced flow. So what do we do with this water that we capture in rivers, send down the canals, and, and, and put into our crops? Well, in, this is the same area. And, and these figures are rough because it's very difficult. I spent a week trying to get these numbers together because you have the value of crops and you have yield on the land. To try and come up with a number of uh, how much it altogether is somewhat difficult. But cereal crops in St. Mary, 79 million. Forages, $25 million. Oil seeds, 16 million. Specialty crops, and I've only picked on two of there. The only two I could actually get some recent numbers for. And, and at the end of the slide, I'll show you a very interesting specialty crop. Potatoes, $70 million worth of potatoes in St. Mary alone. Beets, $16.5 million. Sadly, this year, this may not be that high because most of the beet crop has been frozen in the ground. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. But the total area, say Mary, and I'm just using a rough number, 400,000 acres of irrigation, and a very rough number of $650 an acre will give you $260 million worth of irrigated crop. 
Now, this number is, is a kind of number I put together given a bunch of crops. Is it accurate? Eh, who knows, probably not. There's, some, there's a whole table of hecklers over there called agriculture and they may have better numbers than I do. <laughs> and this is the point at which they can heckle me. So that is how much money we produce in irrigated crop. So what's the flip side? What does that do for us? Does it make farmers richer? Yeah, of course it does. But for every dollar in sales, $2.54 goes into the GDP. So think about that. That's two and a half ratio to one, putting money into the GDP. For every million dollars in sales, there's 39 jobs. Those jobs are not all on farm. They're in the agri-food section. They're in trucking. They're in all kinds of other jobs that are supported by those crops. You know, the trickle-down effect, of course. For every cubic meter of water that's diverted, $3 in GDP and $2 in labor income. Again, it's that trickle-down effect, using, you know, using that water to produce a crop to, which then requires labor and, and puts money into the GDP. Irrigated related ag. I, I checked on Stats Canada. There's something like 170 agri-food businesses in Lethbridge alone. The figure I get has 1.7 billion. But interesting, in, in today's paper in the Lethbridge Herald, I don't know if you read it, there was an editorial on, on more women should be in agri-food businesses because they think differently about producing food and producing the business itself, which I found really interesting. Nothing maybe to do with my talk, but something to do with the talk that I believe there's a frontier for us here in the agri-food business as we move forward. And I'll talk a little bit about that later in terms of how I'm daydreaming about the future. A little bit just to, to add, and some of you may be talking, thinking efficiency and that sort of thing. These are the total acres between uh, 1998 and, and 17. And uh, if I do a simple progression around that, that's a 6% increase in land, but that's simple. And you can see the last four years or so have been tremendous increase in, in irrigated land. This is the total water used. It's okay, it's okay. And, 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 and the, the graph on the side there shows acre feet. And you, it goes up and down. And you could see that because of the changing climate as it's wet. And, but if we look at how much is used on each acre itself, again, is that up and down variability. But a simple progression shows that there's a 13% decrease over that period of time in use of water irrigated, on irrigated crops. Why is that happening? Well, this simple graph shows it. This is a purloin from the Alberta agriculture map. You can see the green bars that are going up are low pressure pivots, which are highly efficient pivots compared to originally when irrigation came up, of course there were things called wheel moves where you have to go wheel them out, and flood irrigation where you just flooded the land. Incredibly inefficient. Irrigators are putting money into efficient systems. And we can see that by using, creating more crop, more valued crop, and less water. So we change directions here where <laughs> I crystal ball, and this is the part which you go, you're wrong, <laughs> and I probably am most of the time, and maybe more so now. 
So the three important areas I see for the future are efficiency, and we know that. Crops grown versus water diverted minus spilled water. And I put that equation up there because it has three things that are most important. The crops grown, and I believe they will change as we see, and, and the varieties will change, and the technology around the crops themselves will change. Water diverted becomes an important issue as we move forward, and spilled water does, in other words, efficiency. Social license renewal. My business has to do this all the time, and should. It's an important thing for us. We are part of that social web, as well as, as living off the environment, and I think those two things are important. And adapting to the changing climate. And, and I'm gonna interject here with, one. I've said this so many times, certainly in private, people say water's scarce. I go, no, it's not. <laughs> it's finite, it's renewable, but it's variable. And then what I often tell, and I'll be talking to grade two students soon, and what I love to say is, you see that glass of water in front of you? Well, statistically, there at least, at least one molecule passed through a dinosaur, maybe more. <laughs> Think about that. Five minutes, thank you. Um, technology, water flow measurement, I believe we're gonna, artificial intelligence is gonna be what helps us to move forward with efficiencies. Right now it takes six days for water to reach the end of our system from the beginning. We need help to make that more efficient. I believe one of those things, and I see it more and more, we have to measure our water at every point. It's very expensive, we don't do it right now. And we have to have help. Artificial intelligence, I, may, I believe, may be that frontier. Increasing pivot technology, again, we see it now. If anybody's an irrigator here, they could probably turn their pivot on with a phone, and most do. Internal storage on and off farm. Storage is gonna be the key, not the big old man dams, but the smaller ones. We have an onion farmer that puts storage on his land to do this. Social license. We are now and will be in the future, because of the change in the legislation, able to sell our water other than for irrigation. Right now, we are able to help industry in places where they would not be able to get city water, for instance. That will increase. And rural development relies on our water supply. We have a tremendous network of water through southern Alberta. And more importantly, we do have to support environmental mitigation wetlands, in-stream flows, we have to share our water, and we do. And that'll become an important part of our business. And I believe we should be able to measure that. We can't run away from this, this particular item. We, you know, uh, when I first started in the 80s, I drove across the Old Man River downstream of what now is the Old Man Dam, but below the Lethbridge Northern um, Diversion. I drove across the Old Man River. Think about that, because <laughs> I used to, I, I, worked, I worked there, and so I just, I was lazy. I didn't want to drive all the way around, so I drove across the river. Try that now. Um, financial sustainability, true cost accounting. We are gonna have to pay the full share of what we own. Right now, we're living off depreciating assets. 
we, our infrastructure is getting older. It's easy to build new things. Governments do that all the time. They find money to build something, but they never find money to maintain it. We're going to, I believe there are going to be changes in practices. As we have more cheaper renewable energy, I see with the value of water going up, more intensive, and we see that. Lettuce being grown just outside, 32,000 lettuces a day. Remarkable, that lettuce place, uh, whatever it's called. You know, and using a little bit of water and creating a crop. Probably the only bad thing if you're looking at the environment is, is the kind of energy used for that, but that's changing too, and hopefully it will continue to change. They're gonna be more efficient systems, not only pivots, and we see some people already trying drip irrigation. I was in Israel with Dave Hill there, and we saw those guys, you know, tiny drops of water, they grow crops. Uh, right now, it's not that, you know, people are not, it's costly. But as the cost of water goes up and the value of crops go up, I see this as being something that will be used. And, and right now, we are putting a lot of water into pipelines. Will, will we be able to increase that? I believe so. Pipelines, as opposed to a canal, are much more efficient. You don't lose water by evaporation or by seepage. The crop, I believe there's going to be more different varieties. I was just saying earlier, the frost-free days have increased in southern Alberta dramatically. Storage again, efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. That's the key, I believe, to everything. To answer the question, how much water did you have at lunch today? If indeed we have some lettuce, you will consume 11 liters of water. If you had a bit of ketchup, I don't see any, but possibly 11 liters of water. And you say, why is that? This is the amount of water required through the entire system life cycle of a lettuce to produce it. That's transportation, because water and fuel are linked. The whole system will require 11 liters of water, as with ketchup. If you have a slice of bread, you're now up to 26 liters. Keep adding up how much water you're now drinking. A tomato, for instance, would be 30 liters. Fresh broccoli, which I actually don't like much, 42 liters. I'm okay, I'm minus 42 liters. An orange, and we know oranges grow in sandy soils. They're not very efficient. We're now looking at 53 liters for your orange. Milk, 180 liters. Cheese. You know where this is going, right? You know what the last one is by now. 210 liters for, for a, a serving of cheese. An egg, I don't believe this one. Now I've gleaned all this information off the internet, I'm sorry to say, but 240 liters to, for the egg. I believe it's because of chickens and, and washing and, and the kind of uh, hygiene you need in a poultry farm requires an enormous amount of water. Plain yogurt, up to 330 liters. And I'll quickly flip through here to the last one, which you're all waiting for, and you know what's coming, right? Anybody want to try and hazard a guess for a steak? Yeah, 4,600 liters. Now, now, don't be shocked. I have to underscore this. It's a renewable resource. You don't destroy this water when you do this. It goes in the, becomes part of the hydrological cycle. And I'll leave you with a picture. This is mint. Think about that. Thank you. I think I went. No. I started two minutes. I started two minutes late, so that's half an hour. Well, thank you.